Hello, everyone, and welcome to a late night edition of the Pilot Podcast as we are going through our 2021 Eagles head coaching. I guess a guide would be more apropos. I was to say it's the premiere, but, you know, yesterday the Eagles shocked the football world by dismissing Doug Peterson as head coach and Gino, we talked about this extensively prior to the show. Um, we'll just start. Uh, were you surprised and or shocked at this decision? Well, first off, thanks for having me. Uh, you know, I, I can't say I was surprised or shocked. I think I sent you a, a message uh, week 16. There was a decision that Doug made, and I said, kind of emotionally and incorrectly, I said, you know, he just got himself fired. Uh, but no, in all seriousness, when you look at uh, the performance of the team, uh, not on the field, but off the field in being able to attract talent in the coaching room and being able to successfully structure uh, what that coaching staff looks like, it's not surprising to see the head coach go. No. You know, this is the fastest a head coach has been fired after winning a Super Bowl since 1972. Oh, really? You know, most... Does it does it beat Jimmy Johnson's uh, uh, ousting from Dallas after the Super Bowl? I think that's classified as him quitting because of uh, okay. you know Jerry Jones. However, the with the Baltimore Colts, which yeah, how outdated is that Baltimore Colts? When that was firing, that was because Johnny, the head coach, refused to bench Johnny Unitas. At the, yeah. who, was at, who was 39 years old at the time and just couldn't play anymore. I, I look at the, the situation, and uh, as an Eagles fan, it's kind of an emotional firing. I mean, Eagles fans have never been in the position where a Super Bowl winning coach is getting fired and no less only three years after winning that Super Bowl. You know, when when you look at a coach like Andy Reid and John, you know, my appreciation appreciation for Andy Reid. I think he's the best coach in Eagles history. I said that before he got fired from the Eagles. I said that the day he got fired from the Eagles and I continue to say it. And yet I supported the firing of Andy Reid because being the best coach isn't always the same as being the best coach for the job. Uh, guys in the building have to believe in you. They can't be tired of your leadership status and they have to be on board with what you're doing. And that's what happened with Andy Reed was the building just wasn't on board anymore after 14 years. And I think some of that happened with Doug you know, when a guy leans too heavily one way or the other, it can cause problems. Not everybody in the building is going to be on board with a guy who's totally a player's coach. He might lose respect. If he's totally the opposite and is a disciplinarian, guys don't take him seriously, a la Chip Kelly. And so it's an emotional time as an Eagles fan to go, you know, looking at the body of work over the last maybe two seasons, he probably should be gone. But he did win us that Super Bowl. Yeah, I would say Doug Peterson was a victim of his own success. And by that, I mean, no one anticipated him winning a Super Bowl two years within his tenure 
as Eagles head coach, particularly after Chip Kelly's dismissal during the 2015 season. But I feel like when you look at their decline from winning the Super Bowl until now, it's a very substantial decline. Yeah, and, and I really I agree with you. And the thing I want to point out is that we can't just look at their decline on the field. I know I said that earlier. Uh, a lot of that on-field stuff, and John, I know you above all people agree with this, a lot of that on-the-field decline has to do with Howie Roseman. But off-field, let's all, let's all take a look at the coaching room and remember the rumors that we heard about having no direction despite having more coaches in the room than any other team about no no progress in creating new or innovative concepts for this team or bringing in outside ideas. I mean, uh, I, I know you kind of uh, went on a little bit of a, I don't want to call it a rant, but you talked about the idea of promoting Press Taylor and that you were against it. And I like Press Taylor. I, I in the coaching community, there are a lot of people who are out there doing a lot of coaching education, and he's very well respected by a lot of people that I respect. The problem is Press Taylor didn't have the clout in the room to be able to stand up and say, well, I think we should be doing this. I think we should be doing that. And that's and the reason I bring that up is that was Doug Peterson's style, was to bring in lesser coaches weren't going to challenge the status quo of this offense. We can look at Jim Schwartz and say, oh, here's a guy with clout. But was Jim Schwartz a Doug Peterson hire? No, he was hired before Peterson. And the team brought, or the organization brought in Jim Schwartz. He's the outlier in the scenario. Yeah, correct. It was the way they went about it was, I don't want to say that Doug was like a puppet head coach. That's not what I try to advocate, but he was, you know, he wasn't a traditional head coach in the NFL where the trend in the NFL with uh, head coaches is like the buck stops with them. Whereas with the Eagles, the buck stops with Howie Roseman. Yeah. And I think if you're a coach or a player with the Philadelphia Eagles, I think in this season in particular, you don't know who was really in charge. Was it Doug or was it Howie? And I feel like, you know, when you look at from this from a business perspective, when you have like managers or leaders and you do, and they're contradicting each other or if they're sending mixed signals then it's going to create chaos. And the Eagles won four games this year. And if you look at those wins, none of them were impressive. They didn't win any impressive games this year. No, I was looking at the looking back earlier today and saying to myself, what was your favorite game this year to watch? And I know that's a stupid way to judge a season, but it's a simple way and, and seriously do it and think about it and say, what was your favorite game to watch? There really was none that you just enjoyed watching. I mean, they beat the 49ers, but that's like beating themselves. I mean, that's like beating the Jets. Not to say the 49ers are not a good organization, but they were at a point where they were terrorized by injury and COVID. 
Um, that's not a knock on the 49ers. That's a picture of reality in that moment. There wasn't a game you can look back on and say, you know what? That was a good game to watch. I really enjoyed that. Well, when they beat the Saints, it was refreshing after being fed bitterness all season. However, you know, when you even look at the circumstances behind that Saints game, the Saints were playing their third straight game on the road. They're playing Taysom Hill at quarterback. You know, the Eagles started a rookie quarterback in his first start. And with the exception of Ben DiNucci, I believe every rookie quarterback performed well in their first, making their first start. So for this season. So I don't like, even that Saints win, it's like, and you look at the context behind it too, like the Saints were playing the Chiefs the next week. They probably took the Eagles for granted for a good portion of that game. And you look at the, how the Saints played in the first half compared to the second half, the Saints almost came back and won two. So even that was a game where they only played one half of like good football. So the whole disjointedness of the season, this was like, like even like the last two seasons prior to this season, they at least had a couple games where they played 60 minutes of competent football. You know, but this year that was completely non-existent. And I think, you know, that's on the coach. I mean, we I like, listen, I'm not a fan of Howie Roseman. I think he's a terrible drafter. I feel like his free agent moves have been very up and down. He makes some good signings. He's made some horrific signings. But, you know, when we're doing talking about X's and O's, like that's on Doug. That's not on Howie Roseman. Howie Roseman doesn't have a headset on calling plays. That's Doug. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, you know, I look back at uh, Jeffrey Lurie's presser after the termination and there was something that a lot of people didn't pick up on that was very telling about why Howie Roseman is still here. And I don't have the quote in front of me, but I, I was just reminded of the fact that he talked about kind of the sense of urgency among team leadership. And when I say leadership, I'm talking about, you know, Lurie, Roseman, Peterson, and maybe Don Smolensky. Uh, who's not involved in the football side. If you don't know who Don Smolensky is out there, he's the president of the team. He's more on the, the, the business end of things, uh, what's going on off field. But anyway, he, he talked about that there was a, a sense of opportunity and urgency when some of these moves were made, that they knew it, they were going to hamper the team in the future, but they had a chance in 18 to strike maybe for another Super Bowl. He kind of let slip uh, uh, talking about the Saints playoff game that year about, you know, we were we were a catch away from maybe going to the Super Bowl um, if Alshon catches that ball, which, of course, maybe they do advance to the next round if he catches that ball. And then he said, you know, in 19, we felt like we still had a shot to go out and be that team um, and kind of create something here um, in this short span. And so we accepted the fact that we were going to put all, a, ourselves in a hole. And whether that's right or wrong, you know, we, we as fans can look at it and go, well, 
you know, yeah, I'd do it. Or you might say, well, no, you can't risk the entire future for five years based on a hunch that you might be good that year. But that's not the important takeaway. The important takeaway is that Jeffrey Lurie is telling us that he knew what was going on and he signed off on it. And so Howie Roseman is to blame for the money issue, but hes it doesn't sound like he's doing it without the go-ahead from Jeffrey Lurie knowing what's what lies ahead. Yeah, and this was the first time I really heard Jeffrey Lurie use the term rebuild so much in a presser because if you recall when they hired Chip Kelly to replace Andy Reid, there was expectations that he was going to turn the team around fairly quickly. And when you look at how they performed in 2013, they won the division. And if you look at all the coaches Lurie has hired since he's become the owner from Ray Rhodes to Andy Reid to Chip Kelly to Doug Peterson, they've all made the postseason within their first two years of coaching the team. Yeah, I mean, there's you look at Jeffrey Lurie, and there's no doubt that his tenure as the owner is, at least in the last 60 years, the golden years of Eagles football. I mean, the only thing we could ever argue was comparable would have been that they they won a championship in the late two championships in the late 40s. Uh, but of course, the competition level is different back then. And certainly the money that was involved is totally different. I, I said to you, and it's certainly something you knew already. Um, Jeffrey Lurie has brought this team to a new level of respectability He's brought this uh, franchise to larger national fame. He's revamped their facilities. He's increased their value in a way that no owner in franchise history has done that. And then on top of it, the success they've had on the field far outweighs anything else anybody's done in franchise history, whether it be all of the championship games under Andy Reid, um, two Super Bowl appearances during uh Lori's tenure, one Super Bowl win, then I don't even know how many um, divisional championships, which, I, you know, that counts for something when you're looking at yourselves versus the Cowboys and Washington and the Giants. Yeah, Jeffrey, I would say a good, I think a good comparison to Jeffrey Lurie's tenure as the owner of the Eagles is he took the Eagles from being a family circus to becoming Cirque du Soleil. The I, Eagles, I don't know that the players would appreciate that, but yeah, no, I get your point. No, but like, you know, they, they were a, I mean, look, I mean, here, I'll give you an example. The Eagles have won 14 division championships. Jeffrey Lurie owned the team for 12 of them. The Eagles only won the NFC East twice now, prior to Jeffrey Lurie, once under Leonard Toast, which was 1980, and then an, another time under Norman Brayman in 1988. Yeah. So that's so, quite a bit. Yeah. I mean, under uh, – we. We all know whether, I mean, you and I are in our early 30s. We we were not around to experience the the embarrassment of, 
of the toast years um, and live them the way others did. But we know the history uh, as fans of the team and we've, we look back and what a joke um, team was on the national level. And it started with the ownership. That's really, I mean, there's, it's undeniable that the lack of leadership, the, the fact that they were cash strapped just made being consistently good totally impossible. Then Jeffrey Lurie comes in and forget consistently good. They've been consistently excellent. I agree. I mean, there, there's no denying Jeffrey Lurie's influence and his vision of creating a premier NFL team. I don't want to say dynasty. That's a little it's a yeah. tad excessive. Yeah. But I would say he's definitely brought the Eagles up into the upper echelon of the NFL. I mean, the Eagles were at one point probably in the same category as the Detroit Lions, the Cleveland Browns, uh, Arizona Cardinals. And then he took them to the same level as the Giants, the Cowboys, and to some effect, the Washington football team. Yeah. Now, I, mean, I do want to point out, you know, we, we grew up at a time when um, – Dallas was going through uh, being young kids. Dallas was kind of the premier team in the division. And I don't want to compare what the Eagles have done to multiple Super Bowl championships by Dallas. But when you look at the, the conference championships and the division wins and the Super Bowl win, um, we, we have people that are our age that grew up in the Philadelphia market and grew up to be Cowboys fans because they were the premier team. And it's funny to think, but, you know, there are people, there are kids now that were born, you know, maybe 10 years ago in the Dallas market who are probably growing up Eagles fans now. And that says a lot about the turnaround of the Eagles. Um, and then the other thing I just want to point out about Lurie's uh, leadership before we move on is I think, I think he is a leader. I think he's an innovative guy. No, he's not a football guy. I think he recognizes that, and that's okay. Uh, I'm okay with that. He's not Jerry Jones, uh, who did is a football guy. He played collegiate football. He's got friends who played with him and went into coaching, and he knows um, he he knows that world and that network. But he he's a meddler because of it. And it causes a lot of problems. And so I'm happy Jeffrey Lurie is not the football guy and can be kind of the emotional leader um, behind closed doors and say, look, from a business standpoint, this is what we have to do. And I think that's what happened. You know, people question the timing of the firing of Doug Peterson. We heard that he was going to stay. We heard that everything was going to be okay, that it was the COVID year. And then suddenly, a few days after the season ends, he's gone. Well, I think that has to do with the fact that as a leader, Jeffrey Lurie sits down with the players, maybe not all of them, but a few of the leaders. He sits down with some of the coaches and he tries to get a feel. It's not, we know from the past, it's not something he does during the season, which is great, but he does it after the season. And I think those conversations gleaned quite a bit of inf uh, information about Doug Peterson and what was going on. A lot of people want to talk about, did Doug Peterson want to bring in this coach, that coach, the other what if the players just sat down and said, look, we're just, we're just not confident in where he's going. Everything's kind of staying the same and the rest of the league is just moving on. 
That's, you know, that's a very interesting point because I think I, I was reading a lot of the messages players had for Doug when he got let go. And, you know, there were positive thanking Doug, like, thank you, Doug. You always had faith in me, Doug, you won a Super Bowl. It was great. I think this, I'm looking way too much into this, but I think it's worth noting that no one said this is total BS. He didn't deserve to be fired. I can't believe this is happening. This is crazy. I'm embarrassed that this happened. Because I remember when Andy Reid got fired by the Eagles. This was before social media was big. And like everyone had Twitter. Like I remember watching the then then CSN, the video of the Eagles cleaning their lockers out. And like Deshaun Jackson was crying because they knew Andy Reid was getting fired. And the reaction was, I can't believe we played so bad that we got Andy Reid fired. Like, I'm embarrassed. I think Jason Kelsey said he was embarrassed that he was on the team that got him fired, you know? And I think, and look, once they get asked about it, they'll probably say, you know, we should have played better. Doug would have gotten fired. But, like, I think you're right. Like, I think maybe players said we need to bring in some outside coaches to help augment this offense, and if Doug didn't want to do that, then he's the roadblock. Yeah, and I think you just hit the key. Uh, the odds of somebody just flat out telling Jeffrey Lurie, hey, look, this guy's a bozo, I don't want to play for him, are very low. That, that it's, not, it's not likely. But Jeffrey Lurie can read between the lines of what guys are saying. When, when a guy says, well, you know, I think the offense was a little stagnant. Some of our concepts we've been using a little too much. A buzzer goes off in Jeffrey Lurie's head because as a, as a leader of a business, nothing should ever stay stagnant. Stagnant is one of the worst terms in the business world. Uh, so I'm sure he's reading between the lines when he's talking to those players. And I think that really had a lot to play with in the whole scenario. I think I texted you this earlier, but I think it's worth noting that it just seemed to me that Doug didn't understand that his scheme, the NFL's catching up to his offense. And he didn't want to make the schematic changes to his offense. And he did and he I think this season's a good example. Like he didn't adjust his offense to match the personnel he had. He now listen, we've said this before. Harry Roseman has not done a good job drafting for this team. He has not done, I can't even say an average job. However, when you are missing your top two all-pro offensive linemen, you have to adjust the types of passes you're calling and the overall, like your overall like plan of attack on offense. Like he was calling some passing plays. That took more than three seconds to develop on the field. I don't know yeah. if you. I don't know if you've noticed that. Well, you I think the biggest thing from a play calling standpoint is watch the way Doug Peterson calls plays when he's got a rookie quarterback in, and it's different than what he calls when he doesn't have a rookie quarterback in, and that's the most telling thing. Carson Wentz's plays that were sent in early in his career were different than what he was getting later in his career. And Jalen Hurts got a lot of those early plays that Carson didn't get. I mean, the easy thing to talk about is the rollouts and things like that. 
um, or the depth of the concepts. The Eagles, much like any NFL team, uh, guys, the, the concepts are all the same. They're all running the same thing. You know, every team's got a flood concept. Every team's got a mesh. Every team's got a levels concept. Um, and the, the protections are where the nuance is. And the coach isn't really calling the protections. That's, that's based on the concept they're running and the defensive alignment, whether the center or the quarterback calls the protection is, um, is, is kind of the deciding factor there for where teams differentiate. Uh, but what I'm talking about is more the mesh points on the runs. Where do the mesh points lie? And when I say mesh points, I'm talking about where on the field does the quarterback hand the ball off? Because it makes a huge difference. It's going to change where the quarterback's eyes are. It's going to change where the running back's eyes are, which even when it's not a real run, say play action, affects your your pass blocking. And I hope I'm not getting too like technical and overcomplicated, but the easy way to say it is um, let's say you're running play action and the running back is going to be running outside the line of scrimmage. The quarterback has a great view of that side of the line of scrimmage, but he has no view of the opposite side of the line of scrimmage, especially if it's to his left hand and he's a right-handed quarterback. Anyway, the play-action passes that Carson Wentz got were A-gap runs a lot of the time. And what that does is it takes his eyes off the field. Carson Wentz is a shotgun quarterback. Um, so his eyes need to be downfield from the start where he can see what's going on. When you take his eyes away from the field, that's when he seems to struggle the most. And yet, that's what Doug wants to do with him. He's He didn't adjust to the needs of the quarterback. And that's a sad part. It's funny you say that he didn't adjust to the needs of the quarterback because what we're going to get more into this when we talk about the prospective coaches, because a lot of them have benefited a lot of quarterbacks who've performed greatly this year or out or exceeded expectations this year. Yeah. You know, if you're going to run an, an offense that's pass heavy and the Eagles have been the most pass heavy offense in the NFC since Doug Peterson took over as head coach, you think you would do things to benefit, benefit your signal caller, you know, not, okay, he needs to adjust to this. And it's almost, it's, I don't want to say it's Andy Reed like, but like Andy Reid does things to help his quarterbacks. I didn't get the same impression from Doug. The impression I got from Doug was, this is my system. You need to run it. Well, every coach has their thing. Andy Reid was the screen pass guy. Remember? Like, oh, yeah. Like, dude, stop running that screen pass. Stop it. Stop. And nevertheless, three times a game, that same screen pass was coming. And Andy or Doug does the same thing. Like a lot of people were like, where's the screen pass this year? Because he kind of got away from it a little bit. Um, but like some of their screen passes, the timing is so weird, especially like those tight end screens. Carson Wentz got sacked several times this year because they ran um, these funky tight end screens where they, they fake outside zone or sweep to one side and then they come back. And again, Carson's eyes are not downfield because he's got to do the play action and 
it, it, it was just like the timing was so goofy and their their protections didn't really fit their skill set you know a lot of their blocking concepts are gap blocking concepts things like um uh, how do i put this a lot of pull a lot of pulling blocks and unfortunately they were stuck with very unathletic or overage guys and when i say overage guys uh i'm gonna name a name that hurts to say because i love him and i hope he's back next year because i think he's terrific jason kelsey, kelsey. yeah uh but he can't be the same person that he was. He can be a smarter blocker than he used to be. If you can decrease the amount of movement he's having to do um, to execute some of these concepts, you can take advantage of the wisdom of having this guy who's an absolute competitor. I mean, this guy's just a rock. Um, what's he at? 103 straight games now played which at the offensive line is just phenomenal. So uh, hopefully another coach will say, hey, look, man, we're not going to run as much gap scheme. I'm not going to pull you as much. I know that's something you were great at before, but I just, I just want you to go out there, snap the ball, make sure our schemes are sound, and, and protect the quarterback. And that's it. And you know what? The Eagles offense might really work that way. Well, yeah, he's going to be a key guy if he wants to come back because the next head coach is going to lean heavily on him since Jason Peters will likely retire. And since Jason Kelsey, had, you know, we don't know who the quarterback is next year. If they decide to move on from Wentz, then I don't think they're going to treat Jalen Hurts like he's a 15-year veteran. You know, he's still a young quarterback. I don't want to go down the rabbit hole on it, but Peters was on a one-year deal, right? So, I I mean, the likelihood of them bringing him back. If they do, Howie Roseman definitely needs to be gone because, you know, bless Jason Peters, but um, his his playing career should be over. And uh, that's okay. We'll see him when he gets to Canton. And we'll have a party for him then. Yeah. uh, He's definitely passed his shelf by date. So I guess in closing with Doug Peterson, I think, you know, to me, to summarize what I think what happened was, was Doug wanted to continue his style of offense. I think with promoting Press Taylor, I think that's what that would have been. I think he was told by Lurie last week to he apparently was told to come up with a list of external candidates to bring into this coaching staff. You showed up the mean with Lurie with no external candidates at all because he, you know, he doesn't understand, you know, he said, because I want a Super Bowl, I shouldn't have to take orders from anyone. And look, he shouldn't have to take marching orders totally from Howie, but. If they're going to operate under this collaborative umbrella, that doesn't mean he gets every single thing he wants. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think they want collaboration, but at the same time, they recognize that this year they had a little too much collaboration. So that would be the building point on that. Um, You know, uh, when you mix... Uh, blue and yellow, you can get a beautiful green, but if you start putting red in there, um, it kind of just turns to brown. So, a, I've never heard that. That's a good I, I 
Thank you. I came up with it right on the spot. I'm pretty good at that. No. Um, but yeah, no. <laughs> when you have too many voices, nobody really knows who to listen to. Or a lot of the time it can take away from listening to the right voice. Uh, I'll use the example of in my coaching time, I felt like I was always the uh, least experienced, least knowledgeable uh, coach in the room. And it, it, it was true. Uh, and that's okay. Because my attitude was, I'm going to sit in the room and listen, and if they want me to say something, I'll say something. But I'm going to let these guys hash out what we need to do, and then I'll execute their plan. The problem is, when you start getting a bunch of guys in the room, eventually the weaker guys aren't all going to have that attitude. Somebody's going to want to have an opinion. And the fact of the matter is, even if you might not listen to that opinion, they just wasted 10 minutes with telling you that opinion. So you got to kind of like pare it down and limit the voices in the room. Yeah. And I'm going to give you a Mike Draves. It's my dad, by the way, in case for those who don't know, ism for you. It's, it takes two people to build a horse. But when you have 10 people, it comes out a donkey. And uh, I would say this Eagles offense this year was certainly a jackass. That's my one, and that's technically not a swear word because that's a name for an animal. So <laughs> I can get away with that. So, yeah, I think with, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's hard with Doug. And I think Howie Roseman should have gone too. But, you know, we can only control, we, could, we don't have any control over the situation. We can just discuss it. That's right. And I think. That's a perfect segue <laughs> into, into the coaching guide. Into the coaching guys, just like that. So, Gino, you you have a big list here. I think I saw somebody claim they have a list of fifty-two coaches. I, I did not click the, on that. Uh, that was a uh, a pay site. I, I tried to check out who they had on there just to see who I missed, uh, and unfortunately, uh, they wanted money, and I'm. I'm not uh, not going to do that. So they probably had like Dick for Meal listed too. Let's be honest. <laughs> I don't think it was a. I'm not going to. I'm not going to name the website because I'm I'm not a fan of theirs to begin with. I think um, you, everyone's heard of them. Um, they're very into clickbait on social media. Um, I think their titles are purposely geared toward doing that, and that's just not what I'm about. So I won't name them. Okay. Well, we won't name them here then. So I have your list here. This is You have you have I, the old list. It's changed. It has changed in the last few hours. That's how that's how I'm rolling with this thing, man. The more and more information I get, the more it changes. But my number one guy is still the same. So I'll let you lead in with that. Okay, so Gino, your number one guy is a guy that I have not heard once in the past day. However, he is a prominent offensive coordinator in the NFL. And that is Pete Carmichael of the New Orleans Saints. So Gino, why don't you introduce Pete Carmichael to the listeners? Well, yeah. So I think the, the reason a lot of people may not be hearing his name is uh, twofold. Number one, yeah. Getting permission to talk to him might be an issue. And number two, I'm not even sure he wants a head coaching job. Uh, but anyway, the Saints 11-year offensive coordinator, uh, he's 
he's 49 years old. He's got 26 years of experience in coaching. He's been in New Orleans for 14 years now, having also served as their quarterbacks coach and passing game coordinator. Prior to that, he spent a combined four years in San Diego with the Chargers as a quality control coach, then an offensive assistant, and eventually coaching wide receivers too. Um, his first job was at New Hampshire as an assistant offensive line coach for a year. If anybody's familiar with New Hampshire around that time, they were pretty, pretty good, um, for a program at that level. Um, and then he ended up with the raging Cajuns at Louisiana tech coaching quarterbacks for four years. Excuse me. The Browns had tapped him as an offensive assistant and tight ends coach for a year before he headed to the Redskins in 2001, serving one year as their offensive assistant and uh, quality control coach. Uh, the interesting part for me is that he obviously played a role in turning Drew Brees' career around when Brees transitioned from the Chargers to the Saints, because it was at the same time that Carmichael was transitioning from the Chargers to the Saints. Um, he also helped in instituting the concepts that have made Taysom Hill successful, which I think translates well for a team with... Uh, at least for now, Carson Wentz and Jalen Hurts. And I guess you could possibly argue that he helped save Teddy Bridgewater's career. Um, It definitely appears to me that he's ready to make the jump from the coordinator to head coach, provided he wants to. Of course, everybody's going to have to wait because the Saints are playing this week. So he's got the pedigree. His downfall may be in finding assistance. Um, because he hasn't really been around the football world too much. I mean, 14 years in one city is a long time. Just ask Andy Reid. That's true. And the Saints, besides Dennis Allen, who became the head coach for the Raiders a long time ago, Sean Payton hasn't had a lot of his assistants poached or tabbed for NFL head coaching jobs. You know, we all talk about the Andy Reid coaching tree and how he him and Bill Belichick have so many assistants head coaching in the NFL. I mean, well, that's a big thing for Andy. He really, he really believes in that. He's very big in that. Um, I would imagine Pete Carmichael is very well compensated as an offensive coordinator, which would make him his, maybe he makes him picky with a head coaching job. Now we know the Eagles have a history of paying coaches a lot of money the Eagles made Chip Kelly one of the highest paid coaches in the NFL when they hired him from Oregon. I don't know what Doug Peterson was paid, but I imagine he's been well compensated since becoming the Eagles head coach and winning a Super Bowl definitely helps with that bottom line <laughs> when you're doing yeah. your taxes. But, you know, I think it's worth noting here with Pete Carmichael, when you look at what the Eagles have on offense, you know, Alvin Kamara has become a superstar with the New Orleans Saints. And Pete Carmichael has had a hand in that. And you look at this current roster, they have Miles Sanders who, you know, I don't think him and Kamara have a similar play style, but, you know, Kamara is very good in the passing game. And while Sanders struggled in the passing game this year, his rookie year, he was the team's best deep threat. Yeah, I mean, John, you'll remember from my scouting report before the draft uh, two years ago that that was a highlight for him. Uh, When I tabbed him as the guy the Eagles needed to go out and get, I said, look, man, even though the Eagles don't run the ball, prioritize this guy because he can affect the passing game. That's where his skills are. And so a coach that could develop that 
that would be huge. And I think you mentioned what he's done with quarterbacks, you know, whether it's Jalen Hurts or Carson Wentz. Or both. Or both, which is why I think what's going to happen. I don't think either one's getting moved. I think they want to see, I think if this is a rebuilding year, then you need to have them battle it out. Well, the other thing is you don't move them until you have your head coach. Because you got got to talk to him and decide what he wants to see happen. So I think, yeah, I think Pete Carmichael would be a name. Fans would be like, oh, I never heard of him. But I think in this town, they would be like, oh, he's the OC of the Saints. Like, wow. Won a Super Bowl with them. Yeah, yeah, so... I think his first year as offensive coordinator was the year they won the Super Bowl. So there you have it. So there you go. Sign me up. Yeah. Should we get the number two? We got. Yeah. Your number. I have your number two here. And that is probably the most talked about name today in regards to the Eagles head coaching search. And that is Oklahoma Sooners head coach Lincoln Riley. Now, I already seen on social media people drawing comparisons to Chip Kelly, but I don't think they're they're kind of baseless. Yeah, Lincoln, I was going to say if you're Riley's a totally different uh, uh, brand than Chip Kelly. I mean, you know, okay, we want to play the he was a college or he's a college coach card. So was Dick Vermeil, and he took a team that was in the gutter to the Super Bowl. So and Jimmy Johnson, yeah. Yeah, I don't want to hear that. Uh, Riley's a, a great candidate. I, I, you know, it would be really interesting. It would be really fun. He's a young guy. He got into coaching at a young age. Um, he was playing quarterback for a year at Texas Tech, and then became a student assistant after a year, um, and then after graduation became a graduate assistant there. Within another year, he was hired on as their wide receivers coach, and a year later, he left. He was like, "That nah, I'm good." See you, Texas Tech. Anyway, Riley became the quarterback coach and offensive coordinator in East Carolina in 2010. He continued in those roles until 2014 when he was retitled offensive coordinator and assistant head coach. In 2015, he joined Bob Stoops at Oklahoma. While he was there that first year, he actually won the Broyles Award, which if you're not familiar with, is awarded to the best assistant coach in the nation in college football and held the offensive coordinator position for only two years until he was named head coach. Uh, He's had success at one of the nation's preeminent college programs and certainly can't complain about their funding or talent pool. It is OU. So prying him away would be extremely difficult. Uh, Obviously, the Eagles have already reached out to Riley, according to reports. Uh, They also state that the Zoom call was made the same day that Doug Peterson was terminated. Uh, But apparently he's at the top of their list. So whether it was a power play or a legitimate consideration for Riley, there's some indication he may want out of OU, despite everything I listed. Um, He's interviewed elsewhere as recently as 2019 when University of Houston courted him. So maybe the NFL does have a chance. On the flip side, it was actually his second time in three years that he was interviewed by Houston. And he was reportedly offered the job both times and took it neither obviously yeah so this is my thoughts with lincoln riley i think i mean my gut feeling is he's using the eagles as a way 
to gain leverage, whether that is he wants more money from OU or he wants more power at OU. You know, does he want to eventually become their athletic director and like run the whole athletics department? I mean, he's very young. I don't think that he wants that position, but you know, his current salary is six and a half million dollars. And when you look at the contract, Jim Harbaugh signed with the Michigan Wolverines, which is a base salary of 4 million, which he could also earn $3.75 million in incentives. Um, assuming he can hit all those, ex- those incentives, which I doubt. Like, I think it's kind of insane that Jim Harbaugh is making potentially more money than Lincoln Riley is. And I think that's what Lincoln Riley's agents probably telling him too. Like you're woefully underpaid at OU. You can get an NFL head coaching job and make more money, or we can just get OU to kick more money over to you, get the boosters to, you know, push for you to get a raise, you know, like, History would support your theory that, you know, he and he could just also be a guy that doesn't turn down interviews. There are some people who they just they want to go out. They want to they want to experience that. They want to make contacts in the football world. Um, You know, just because you don't take a job doesn't mean you're you know, there's any unpleasantry between you uh, and and the team or the school. So that might just be something he enjoys, or it could be a power play. You know, and I also think with Oklahoma, you know, they have a stranglehold on the Big 12. Texas is not the program it once was when when we were coming up. Yeah, It was them and OU were the two preeminent teams. And uh, that ain't the way it is anymore, man, you know. That that's a one one team conference. The Big Twelve is not as powerful as it used to be. No, and yeah. that has a lot to do with the competition sliding backward as much as it does OU just kind of keeping up with where they were. Um, he's done a great job. Don't get me wrong. I you know I'm a fan, but um, the reshuffling in the conference and teams that haven't maintained their status also. Um, definitely have a role to play in that. And, and of course, college football is a funny, funny, fickle beast because money is always going to be the driving factor in who's good and who's not. And the money really comes from the TV revenue. It always has. It's the only reason Notre Dame became Notre Dame. You know, there was a time when, you know, everyone wanted to see army play and everybody wanted to see Navy play and, um, you know, Penn uh schools like that you know uh yale those days went bye-bye when the tv stuff was introduced and notre dame had the passing attack to make the tv more exciting and that's the driving factor here and you know people on the national scale they they don't find certain programs as appealing and so they don't drive the tv money to those programs OU has managed to keep that alive because the area that they're in is not a very, and I I mean the geographical area, is not a very clouded collegiate football field. They draw, obviously, from Oklahoma, but they're big in Texas, too, until you start it to get down to the regions where, you know, 
Texas, Texas Tech, Texas A&M start to draw. But, um, yeah, I, I think it has a lot to do with just the other programs not maintaining. But now here's an interest. Now here is a another storyline that's come out of this. So this has come out of Dallas particularly, is that they think Lincoln Riley could be using the Eagles – to eventually get the Dallas Cowboys to basically give him whatever he wants contractually and having a say on the personnel. That seems pretty far fetched. <laughs> that's mean, what to, that's what their da- Dallas media yeah, that's what Dallas media is yeah, reporting. To target another professional team in that way, especially when I mean, let's face it, Dallas has a guy that's kind of tapped as the guy waiting in the wings right now. Kellen Moore. Well, actually, no. And it's a guy that's on my list. Kellen Moore, uh, probably everyone would agree with you because that's the name um, that's been floated in previous years. But I actually think there's another guy who I'm not going to mention quite yet who has a more realistic chance of taking the reins if and when McCarthy does go. Would his initials be KR? You might be onto something. You might not. Let's, should we move on to the next guy on our list? Uh, sure. Let's move on to your, your next candidate here. And that would be another college coach who I think many people aren't familiar with. I would doubt people in the Philadelphia market have any kind of knowledge of this guy unless they are hardcore college football junkies. Well, with, Betting being a lot more open as it is now, they might have probably seen him once or twice, but how about you introduce him? All right, so uh, number three on my list is Matt Campbell. So uh, he's got 18 years coaching experience. He's 41, just wrapped up his fifth year as head coach at Iowa State. He's a Cyclones head coach. Uh, before, uh, Before coaching, he had spent a year as a defensive lineman at Pitt and then actually transferred down um, after that year to Mount Union, which is a Division III school. He spent two years at a graduate as a graduate assistant at Bowling Green, and in 05, the Mount Union Purple Raiders brought him back, uh, this time as an offensive coordinator and offensive line coach. Two years later, Bowling Green wanted him back, and they made him their offensive line coach. Within another year, they also gave him the job of run game coordinator. Uh, so definitely an offensive-minded guy despite playing D-line. He left his dual role at Bowling Green in 09 to take on the same responsibilities with the Toledo Rockets, and within a year became their offensive coordinator. Yet another year later, Campbell was their head coach, and he actually remained there six years before taking his current job. He's done an excellent job at o- at Iowa State. Uh, the rumor mill was pushing that he was actually set to meet with the Jets, But Campbell has since stated that he's going to remain at Iowa State. Of course, he wouldn't be the first to go back on such a statement, but he does seem sincere. And again, the NFL doesn't come knocking every day, and the talent pool for the Cyclones isn't exactly the strongest, nor are the lights at Jack Trice Stadium the brightest. So like I said, John, the NFL doesn't come knocking every day unless you're Campbell. The league wants him, they want him bad, and they've been calling for two years. So the Jets last year called for Dan Campbell or oh, for Matt, Matt Campbell? Campbell. Uh, no, actually, that was this year. That was just a few days. Okay, ago. I just want to make clarification. Yeah, I think 
See, what's interesting about this is that this could be a candidate the Eagles could revisit in the near future if they have a Band-Aid type head coach. You know, I think Campbell probably turned down the Jets position because he might not have felt he was ready to go to the NFL. Some guys do that. Well, the other thing is, um, you know, there's been a lot of talk from ESPN and SI saying the Eagles are not an attractive position. Let me tell you something. Compared to the Jets, the the Eagles are looking pretty darn good. Uh, You know, when was the last time the Jets really made a serious play? I mean, was Vinny Testaverde playing quarterback at that point? Yeah, Herm Edwards was their head coach, was probably their last really good head coach. Yeah, I mean, and and not to say, I, actually, I disagree with that statement because I think they've had good coaches. I just don't think they're a good franchise. Another guy on this list uh, is a former Jets head coach, a guy that people have been hearing about. Um, I I don't think Eric Mangini is a terrible coach, uh, but the Jets are a bad situation in terms of acquiring talent, in terms of structuring uh, the organization, in terms of just the fact that they kind of play second fiddle to another team in the city. And uh, if you look at their ownership, the Johnson family has been, I mean, when you look at Woody Johnson... He's a certainly an interesting character to say the least. Yeah. And he's going to be back to owning the jets because he's no longer the ambassador to great Britain. Cause uh, tr- uh, the Donald Trump's not president anymore. He, that was his ambassador. Joe Biden will have a new ambassador. So now Woody Johnson is back in the NFL. There you have it. There you go. We jump over to easily the most experienced guy and the one whose name is popping up around the league everywhere but Philly. Yeah, Jim Caldwell. Why don't you uh, let the li- – for anyone who doesn't know who Jim Caldwell is, I'm sure they've heard the name, but if you want to go into his credentials, I think it's worth Yeah, no, going uh, into. You know, most people when they hear Jim Caldwell are going to think about his time as the lions. And that's such a small snippet and really doesn't tell the story. He's the oldest guy on my list. He's been, you know, he's 65. Um, so social security and, uh, AARP are on the way. Uh, but he's been in coaching for 47 years, uh, including his 15 years spent during three stints as a head coach, First for Wake Forest, uh, he was there seven years. Second, the Colts for two, and the Lions for four years. Um, he began as graduate assistant at Iowa, and after only a year, he transitioned into a larger role with the Salukis, John. The Salukis of Southern Illinois. John and I have a little strange connection to the Salukis, but uh, we won't get into that. And he handled receivers for three years there. He spent a year as an offensive assistant at Northwestern before coaching receivers at Colorado and Louisville between 82 and 85. Then it starts to get interesting because in 86, Joe Paterno brought him in to coach quarterbacks for the Nittany Nittany Lions, who went undefeated beating Miami for the national championship that year. He stuck around there until 93 when he left Happy Valley for his head coaching stint at Wake Forest. Then in 2001, he was hired to coach quarterbacks by the Buccaneers, left for Indy in 02, still coaching quarterbacks and also serving as the assistant head coach until the Colts promoted him 
in 09 to head coach. So after his dismissal there, the Ravens brought him in to coach quarterbacks for, for a year. He was out of coaching in 13, yeah, 2013, but returned as the head man of the Lions a year later. So obviously he's been away from football since 2017. Some of his accolades, uh, in addition to his national championship, include the fact that he's a two-time Super Bowl winning coach and was a four-year starter at defensive back for the Iowa Hawkeyes, if you didn't know that. So multiple sources are currently connecting Caldwell with the Houston Texans vacancy right now, and he actually met with team leadership a few weeks ago, but even though it's been a few weeks, no deal in place, so he's still available. Uh, Prior to his Detroit arrival in 14, it's worth noting, the team had only one playoff appearance in 13 years. Caldwell was able to help the Lions after Jim Schwartz to get Detroit back in the playoffs twice in a three-year span. That was their highest frequency of postseason qualification since Barry Sanders. So in his career, he's coached and developed Peyton Manning, uh, the prime years that Joe Flacco had, and also Matthew Stafford. Credentials are high on this guy. I feel like I have mixed feelings with Caldwell. Caldwell is certainly qualified to become a head coach again, but when you look at the trend that's going on in the NFL, with everyone hiring these 30-something guys to be head coach, you know, they want to they I think they all want to kind of mimic what the Rams have done with Sean McVay. Sure. And then prior to him, Andy Reid was very young when the Eagles hired him. I believe he was the youngest, second youngest head coach in the NFL at the time behind John Gruden. Yeah. So this idea of wanting a young coach with a bright mind that will be your coach for a long time, it seems to be the trend. You know, I think Caldwell, I could see Caldwell becoming an offensive coordinator with play calling duties for a team that hires a defensive coach to be their head coach. If he's interested, he's 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 clearly interested in getting back into coaching. He's taken an interview at this point, but is he interested in working for someone else at this point, or does he really just want to execute his plan? Um, You know, he's 65. As I pointed out, he's been around, he knows what he wants to do and right or wrong He's going to have his opinions. I think you're right about the trend in the league, but sometimes you got to break the trend, not saying they should go out and hire Jim Caldwell. I think the important thing to note with this list is what I'm not saying this is the order of which I would want to see guys hired. These are, this is kind of my order of interest in the team interviewing these guys. We as, as outsiders can't say who the best coach is going to be. We see their credentials, but we don't know the specifics of their situation. We don't know the specifics of the Eagles situation. You know, the guys in the room are going to have to evaluate what kind of plan and experience and ideas they have for correcting the issues that are going on at the Novacare complex. And Jim Caldwell is a guy who's pretty much seen it all at multiple levels of football and at least is going to have a plan, which I think is the biggest thing when you have a team that appears to be in such turmoil, having no idea of how to move forward. Well, I have something that's very worth noting about Jim Caldwell. 
Now you mentioned that, you know, he mentored Peyton Manning, Matthew Stafford, and Joe Flacco. Well, I'm going to read you some stats about Peyton Manning. We can go in. I don't think it's necessary to go into the other two guys because once I go in at Peyton Manning, you're going to see the same trend with Flacco and Stafford. So prior to Jim Caldwell being hired as the Colts quarterbacks coach, Peyton Manning threw 28 interceptions his rookie year in 1998. In 1999, he threw 15 interceptions. In the year 2000, he threw 15 interceptions. In 2001, he threw 23 interceptions. Now, for Caldwell's first year as quarterback's coach, Peyton Manning threw 19 interceptions, which is still a lot, but it was less than the year prior. And then from 2003 to 2008, Peyton Manning averaged 10 interceptions a season. <laughs> now, that. we obviously know that Peyton Manning obviously matured a lot as a quarterback. You know, he's obviously a high IQ guy, one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time. However, when you look at Carson Wentz and when you look at even Jalen Hurts, they both turned the ball over a lot this season. And I think we can agree that as much as we want to see those touchdown numbers go up from them, if those turnover numbers are cut in half, a lot of those one possession games the Eagles lost could potentially turn into wins. Yeah, and it's a cause and effect thing. I mean, if you're turning the ball over less, you're going to score more. It's just, that's the way it works, right? I mean, you would think. So, yeah, no, I mean, uh, again, I'm not saying they should go out and hire the guy, but don't just throw him out because you know him and you've seen him and he, he didn't have great success with the Lions. This guy, um, at least on paper, has the right resume, the right pedigree to take the reins. Whereas the next guy on my list is a little bit more of a wild card. I, I agree with you. And that would be Bill's offensive coordinator, Brian Dable, who I think of all the NFL assistants out there right now, I think he might be the most talked about right now. Around the league, yeah. Around the league from what on the offensive side of the ball. We'll go to another candidate who I've seen talked about a lot. He's on the defensive side of the ball. Let's talk about Brian Dable. Why don't you uh, let the listeners who don't know much about Brian Dable, why don't you clue them in onto his resume? Well, he's a little bit a little bit on the younger side. He's not in that 30 range. He's 45 years old, been around for 23 years, currently finishing his third year as offensive coordinator for the Bills. He spent his first four years as a graduate assistant and volunteering, splitting time at William & Mary, the Michigan Wolverines, and the dreaded New England Patriots. In 2002, the Patriots promoted him to wide receivers coach and won two Super Bowls before he was hired by the New York Jets as the quarterback's coach in 2007. If memory serves correctly, that would have been Mangini heading over from New England, so that would make sense. Correct. Um, he stayed there just uh, two years. And between 2009 and 2012, Dable served as the office, offensive coordinator for the Browns, the Dolphins, and Chiefs then eventually returned to New England to coach tight ends in 2013. In 2017, he actually left for Alabama, where he served double duty for the Crimson Tide as offensive coordinator and quarterbacks coach. Uh, 
in his only year with Coach Saban, they went on to win a national championship, which probably doesn't say much because that's like every other year. Uh, that led to his current job working with the Bills. He's a member of five Super Bowl championship teams and, of course, the national championship team previously mentioned. He was also a two-year starter while playing at the University of Rochester. Um, he's been floated by the media as a candidate for the Texans, Jets, Chargers, and I've even heard a little buzz about the Eagles. He's had good success in taking Josh Allen from a bottom three statistical performer in the league to a top three in record time. So that puts him in demand quite a bit. Uh, obviously, Buffalo is set to play this weekend, so his focus is directed there for now. It's worth noting, though, John, Dable's agent is Bob Lamont. Bob Lamont also represents, drumroll please, Howie Roseman. So uh, if they want to maybe work through Bob Lamont on the side, there are definitely channels there that can make that happen. Yeah, and I think, you know, as much as of a coincidence that is, the Eagles, there could be subterfuge <laughs> there because they could just communicate through the agent. They don't have to go through the team at all i mean this, yeah. this is how it i mean this is how it happens in the nfl when teams negotiate contracts before the uh what they what they call it the official tampering period yeah the uh the legal the day, legal tampering period yeah. legal tampering period because back in the day you know uh, let's say you have a t a player on your team whose agent was drew rosenhaus well the t would would be like oh hey uh Bill Smith, yeah, let's talk about his contract. Let's talk about this other guy that's, you know, player X who's a free agent who we want to sign. And, you know, that's it was be like cloak and dagger stuff. And they would have a contract worked out like five minutes in a free agency. What you say is, you know, you kind of say, well, hey, look, uh, I uh, we were seeing that uh, you guys are working on a deal with so and so. Uh, Any do, do you see that working out? And the guy might go, well, we're still working on it. And that's kind of the signal, like, oh, the door's open. And then then you kind of say, well, I mean, like, what kind of money are you guys hoping for? And the guy kind of gives you a number and you go, oh, man, uh, we got room for that. And that's kind of the signal, like, oh, wait a second. Hang on. Negotiations might open up here. So, yeah, no, nah, I mean, there's definitely ways to do it. Uh, the Eagles are pretty good about managing relationships. I will point that out because um, they have a relationship with the Bills coaching staff, much like they do with the Chiefs coaching staff. So they're big on that. Um, so they're not going to do anything like outright wrong. Um, but there's nothing, you know, at least morally wrong about an agent just having in the back of his mind, like, oh, wait a second, this team's interested. When he gets done with the season, I better tell him about it. You know, that sort of thing. I think it's worth noting that Sean McDermott, when he was the defensive coordinator with the Carolina Panthers, when the Eagles had their head coaching vacancy in 2013, went on WIP and basically asked for the job. <laughs> and like you've mentioned that relationship, that's where probably, you know, it's the Sean, it's Sean McDermott. He seems to be on good terms with the Eagles organization. Absolutely. And the Eagles are big on that. 
They don't let people, you know, Jeffrey Lurie said this about Doug Peterson. It's not a personal thing. It's not an emotional thing. It's not, it's not, it's not cutting ties with a person. It's, it's making a, a business change. When we move on, that doesn't mean the guy's not going to be back in some capacity. It just means right now we want to see something else. And that's all it is. And he went to work for another former Andy Reid assistant, particularly Jim Johnson with Ron Rivera. So it wasn't like he went outside of the Andy Reid sphere of influence. He stayed in that sphere of influence up until he became the head coach of the Bills, if you think about it. And that's largely how this works with coaches. I mean, you, you get to know guys, you get to see who you're comfortable with, who's running schemes that either you A, know already and really like, or B, you want to learn from. That's more in your early part of your career when you're, you know, QCing and GAing and things like that. Uh, but at, later on, it's more about like, well, I already worked with this guy. I know his his thing. and um, Or it's like, oh, I I'm in a position to hire someone. I know this guy's good. He knows my system. Let me call him up. You don't, you don't kind of go out there and um, scroll Twitter and find some guy halfway across the country that you've never met and go, well, they're, this team's good. Let me give this guy a call. It's just, it just doesn't work that way. It's a, it's very relationship based. Yes. So, so I think with Brian Dable here, if you hired him as the head coach, I think, you know, his obviously they're bringing him in. I think what the media is going to say is he's here to fix Carson Wentz, which I think is one of the reasons Jeffrey Lurie want to bring him in because Jeffrey Lurie has made a sizable investment in the Carson Wentz financially and draft and draft wise too, you know. And I think uh, you, you see what he did with Josh Allen. They're hoping he's going to do the same thing with Carson Wentz, and I think. Brian Dable can also attract a good offensive coordinator because if you look at from the offensive coordinating perspective is that, I mean, this is just me, you know, I'm just riffing baby (laughs) is that I think um, he's going to, that the, whoever's the offensive coordinator, Brian Dable, if they fix Carson Wentz is going to, you know, not have to absorb all the responsibilities, but they're going to get a bunch of the credit. Does yeah, that make sense? That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. That's a very good point. Like, actually, oh, no, go ahead. So to say, like, uh, my point is like, you know, Dable's obviously, not, I mean, Dable's job isn't to fix Carson Wentz, is to make the, is to get the Eagles in the right direction. Fixing Carson Wentz is one of the things he needs to do to get them there. Right. Right. That's right. But, you know, and, uh, but I think, it's still going to be a good job for an OC because at least he has Brian Dable to fall back on. And the other thing is um, nobody's going to, nobody's going to beat you up about not fixing something that's broken. Right. Um, You know, you don't, you don't walk, I'll use another metaphor. You don't walk into a room where there's a shattered vase and then get yelled at for not fixing the shattered vase, but you do get lauded if you glue it back together in a way that you could never tell it was ever shattered. Right. So it's kind of that thing like, Oh man, if I go in there and I fix him, I look like a genius. And if I don't, everybody just goes, ah, eh, he wasn't that good to begin with. 
It's true. My thing with Dable is this. is like, okay, let's say you can't fix Carson Wentz. I look at Jalen Hurts. I don't think Jalen Hurts has the arm strength to run Dable's offense like the way Josh Allen runs it. Josh Allen can throw a football 90 yards by flicking his wrist. His issue was he, you don't know within that 90 yards where the ball was going to go. Yeah, and that's very inaccurate. That's that sounds like another quarterback on the Eagles roster. Strong arm, but maybe not the most accurate thrower. And I think what they love, I think what makes Dable such a desirable coach is like we can't teach arm strength like you can't teach speed. You know, you can't teach someone to run a 4 2 40 time or, you know, have tremendous speed, but is how you utilize that speed is what makes you effective, Jalen Rieger. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But I think you're spot on. I think, I think on. you know, you already have the ability there. And it's like Carson Wentz hasn't proven that he can play. Like, let's also get that out there. Like, this is his first real bad season. It's not no, I'm like. A, I'm a Carson Wentz fan. I like the guy. I think he, he has a bright future to this day. Um, uh, it's obvious that the offense ran better with Hertz because of a number of factors. The play calling changed. Um, the, the fact that he was more mobile with a bad line allowed him to extend plays. There's, there's a thousand reasons why, but I think in a best of scenario, like say you build a championship contender, I think a repaired Carson Wentz is better than peak Jalen hurts for that team. If that makes sense. I agree. I agree with you. And I think one thing that's also, and here's one more thing with Dable before we move on, I want to mention, you mentioned Dable's coaching history. You know, he's been with new England. He's been with so many different teams, you know, Nick Saban, Bill Belichick, and now with Sean McDermott, he's ingratiated himself in several big name coaching circles. And one of the reasons that Jeff McLean of the Inquirer mentioned that led to Doug Pearson's dismissal was when they were looking for external candidates for him, he, he's not connected to none of any of them. And they were afraid that they wouldn't be able to bring anyone in because the only place that Doug Pearson can go to pull in coaches is from the chiefs and they aren't going to get their top flight coaches because they're looking for head coaching jobs. Right. So what you're going to get the assistant offensive line coach from the chiefs to bring them in. to a prominent role, like they, they want, they, they don't want that. <laughs> so I think with Dable, I think they could probably put together a very good staff under yeah. him. As I go through this list, that becomes a, um, that becomes a topic with a lot of guys is, okay, this guy is performing well, but what's his network like? And that's a part of being a head coach. Now, I'm going to use that kind of as a, uh, I'm going to use our previous point as a segue here. So we talked about fixing Carson Wentz. The next guy on the list is a guy who, if you bring him in, is not being brought in to fix Carson Wentz. That is not his bread and butter. And it's a guy that the Eagles are already linked to in Todd Bowles. Um, so, uh, 24 years in coaching, 
Um, after his playing career, eight seasons played with the Redskins and the Niners, including a Super Bowl with Washington. Uh, he's 57 years old, currently in his second year as defensive coordinator of Tampa Bay, and obviously a big name even before that. So his first coaching gigs were, de- were as the defensive coordinator and secondary coach at both Morehouse College in 97 and Grambling State the following two years. Went on to coach the Jets secondary for a year. Spent four years coaching that group in Cleveland and another three in the same role in Dallas. Uh, so by 2008, he'd, he'd been named not only secondary coach, but assistant head coach for the Dolphins. Late 2011 rolls around. Miami makes him their interim head coach. The following year, he took the secondary coach's position with the Eagles and, of course, was made interim defensive coordinator in November when the team fired Juan Castillo after week six. Uh, the following year, Andy Reid and crew were out. Bulls took the defensive coordinator position with Arizona. Two years later, he was chosen as the head coach of the Jets before being fired in 2018. So Todd Bowles is a Temple alum. He's from North Jersey. Uh, won multiple NFL Assistant Coach of the Year awards for his work with the Cardinals in 2014. And the Eagles have requested to interview him when possible since the Bucks are still in the playoffs. Yeah, this is an intriguing name because I think he's a he's not a it's not a sexy name. Like no. everyone's looking at like Lincoln Riley, Brian Dable. Yeah. And he's a defensive coach and the Eagles don't hire defensive coaches. That's true. The last I mean the only defensive coach they've hired was Ray Rhodes and that was when he was the defensive coordinator for the Super Bowl champion 49ers if I'm not mistaken. So even then mm-hmm. like he was a defensive coach. I'm pretty, yeah. Let's look up Mr. Mr. Raymond Rhodes here. Let's see his his previous job. He was the he was the Packers. He was the defensive coordinator of the Super Bowl. There you have it. Champion 1994 San Francisco 49ers. There you have it. That was the. I remember that was the. Steve Young's voice cracked when he's screaming. You know. No one will take this away from us. Because, you know, he was Joe Montana's, you know, understudy for so many years. And, yeah. you know, well, whatever. Don't get into that. You know, Harry Roseman did when he drafted Jalen Hurts. Oops, did I say that? Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> anyway, let's talk. I mean, let's go into Bulls here. Like, it's another guy that we kind of know a little bit about. He's been a head coach in the league. I think a lot of people are turned off because of his history with the Jets, but like who has been successful with the Jets? Like, can we just erase all history of anyone who's ever coached the Jets? Uh, Weeb Eubank was successful. With I mean, since, uh, since at least Vinny Testaverde, let's put it that way. If not all the way back to Joe Namath. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Like, you know, Bill Belichick coached the Browns. I mean, Parcells quit. Like, he just quit. He was like, I'm not doing this anymore. He's like, I'm out of here. And it wasn't a New York thing because he coached the Giants. You know, Parcells was just like, no. Like, like the, the city wanted him gone. The team kind of, like, wanted him gone. But Parcells was like, even before the decisions were made, he's like, you know what? You stuck me in a situation where my quarterback got hurt and I didn't have anybody to play. So my punter had to go out and play quarterback. <laughs> he was just done with it. 
Yeah, and I also feel, yeah, Parcells was always wishy-washy. Like, he could only tolerate so much, like, politics behind the scenes that he just was like, I had enough, you know, which made no sense why he became the Dallas Cowboys head coach, you know. <laughs> you know, that, that was, you know, money. It was, he just needed a paycheck. You know, I think he was divorced. I think, yeah, he was divorced. That's why he took the Cowboys job. Funny, real quick, well, before we'll go on more into bowls, is that my dad used to work as a travel, you know, he used to sell pool and spa equipment. And when Parcells got divorced in like the early 2000s, the guy, the distributor he worked for, he, he went to his house because, you know, Parcells had a big pool or whatever. So he needed like, you know, stuff you need to clean a pool with. When he went there, there was a giant moving truck and Bill Parcells' ex-wife was given away like, all of his swag to the movers. They're like, Oh, are you a giants fan? Well, here's the jacket he wore when he won the super bowl. (laughs) So these like random strangers. (laughs) Yeah. Like he got taken to the cleaner. So I could, that's why he took that Cowboys job. But, you know, I think the thing with bulls is everyone's going to wonder, well, who would he bring in to be his OC? And do you yeah. think any of these names you have listed, that would be who his offensive coordinator is? I have a feeling that could be a possibility. I think Deuce Staley would be an option. He's Deuce Staley ranks very low on this list. I'm just going to get that out of the way. Uh, my my head coaching list has Deuce Staley at something like number 14. And it's nothing against Deuce. It's just the fact that he's been here. He was ahead in the room. And he's never coordinated any side of the ball. He's got very limited, very, very limited history. And well, his coaching history extends to one team. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and you know what? If I can, do you mind if I just jump right down to number 14 for a second? Because this is a very fluid list. So, yeah, yeah sure. Let's talk about Deuce. All right, so let me let me pull up my Deuce Staley notes here. All right, so uh, big big Deuce. So uh, forty five years old. Uh, obviously had a ten year playing career, including his time with the Eagles and his and the Steelers. Won a Super Bowl with the Steelers, but uh, he kind of had some help in the backfield uh, with a a certain guy named after a motor vehicle. Um, Cadillac Williams. No, yeah, no, definitely not. No. Um, so anyway, um, went on to a 10 year coaching career that led him to his latest role, which he's had had since 2018 in 2011, the Eagles actually brought him in. A lot of people don't realize this as a special teams quality control coach. Basically, uh, what that means is they hired him to grab coffee. Um, uh, they promoted him to running backs coach in 2013 and five years later added the, on the title of assistant head coach. That's it. That's it. A year as quality control coach, like five years as a running back coach. And he, and you know, well, actually a little more than five, it was seven. Uh, and a couple years being called the assistant head coach, which of course with the Eagles means nothing. Um, so a two time Super Bowl winner, obviously he added to his, playing career Super Bowl with a coaching one when the Eagles won. Um, Obviously, we all know Malcolm Jenkins, guys like that, have gone on Twitter in support of Staley, so let's get that out there. Um, They've 
they've supported him getting the nod from Jeffrey Lurie, who himself had stated that he expects the team to at least consider Staley for the posting. He's never coordinated an offense at any level. I'm not not saying that he can't be the head coach because of that. Andy Reid wasn't a a coordinator. I'm just listing the qualifications on paper. Uh, But he's never... He's never coordinated any kind of offense, defense, anything like that. He's obviously a member of this muddled coaching room that the Eagles put together over the last three years since the Super Bowl. Uh, So even though he's the most familiar name for us, he's probably also the biggest wild card for the Eagles. Um, And the other thing kind of worth noting is like Staley is available. He's a name that's well known around the league. Everybody, you know, when you play 10 years and you coach 10 years, like people know who you are. Not a single other team has been connected to him, even though he's out there available for anybody that wants him. And I think that kind of says something. Yeah, I I looked at this current situation similar to what happened with Jim Harbaugh with the 49ers. And the 49ers wound up promoting longtime defensive line coach Jim Tom Sula to be their head coach in 2015. But even when we look at Jim Tom Sula's resume, he has a much bigger resume than Deuce Staley has. And I feel like them promoting Deuce Staley is like something the Flyers of the 90s would have did under Bobby Clark when they would just promote former flyers to be their head coach as opposed to going outside of the organization to bring in different concepts. I mean, listen, I love Deuce Staley, but all the people that want Deuce Staley to be the head coach on Twitter was because he was a former player. Like if Deuce Staley was uh, John Smith, would he be getting the, uh, the amount of attention and I, I and I want to add to that. Deuce Staley, I, I, I think it's hard for me to say we're not in the room. I think he's a good coach. Every indication is he's a good coach. But for me, be I said it at the beginning, being a good coach is not enough. Like right now, the Eagles need a fresh face. Um, I think if somehow you can keep Staley in play. That's a great thing. I would certainly consider him for an offensive coordinator's role. He's more than qualified for the position. Um, But I think the top guy right now needs to be somebody from outside. That's big. But I think the most pessimistic look at this, and I try not to be a pessimist, but I feel like the Eagles would turn to Deuce because all the people they've brought in to interview turn the job down because of Howie Roseman because are you saying Todd Bowles wouldn't take the job I'm just just throwing that out there I mean that the thing is I don't know I'm just playing with you (laughs) I know it's like I mean Todd Bowles turned that job down then it's like like you see my face on camera right now that would be my reaction like what no, nah, I actually wouldn't be shocked. He's got a great situation going on right now. Uh, I, 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 it wasn't, it wasn't me saying that Todd Bowles shouldn't turn the job down. It was just me circling back to uh, the number six option on my list, which is Todd Bowles. But, like, if I mean, if Jeffrey or if none, if no one else wants to coach the team, and you're Jeffrey Lord, and you have to go to Deuce, do you? I mean. Do you go to Howie and say, look, 
you're scaring all these people away. It's like, I know we're rebuilding, but if we win less than four games next season, you're out of here. Because the fan backlash, if they go like 3-13 and 13 with Deuce Staley, I mean, I didn't go to the games this year, obviously, because of COVID. But I will bet every dollar I have that by like week 10, if they're getting blown out by the Cowboys, they're not going to be chanting, Dallas sucks. They're going to be chanting, fire, Howie, yeah. fire, Howie. Heck, they might do it week one. It, it could happen. I mean, depending on who that head coach is and what the roster looks like, it's going to be a different roster. I mean, Eagles fans are emotional, overly emotional, I think, but they're not stupid. Like, if they hire Deuce Staley, people, most people will see what the reason is behind that. Well, I don't know about that. I wouldn't go that far, but I just – I can't stress the point enough. Um, I just – I. Me personally, and maybe it's me letting my emotion as somebody who grew up an Eagles fan, uh, letting that emotion go wild. I just, I want a change of pace. Um, I think it's going to be hard to get a guy like Todd Bowles more because he's a defensive coach and the Eagles only invest 35% of their cap space in defensive players. Uh, I think that's going to be the real reason why they don't get a guy like that because if you're coming in and you you want to be the defensive signal caller, are you going to be okay with the fact that the team currently has double the amount of money uh, that's invested in the defense going to the offense? I mean, think about that. The Eagles spent double the amount of money putting their offense together versus the defense. And yet somehow Jim Schwartz managed to make the defense the better unit on a lot of Sundays. Warts and all. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, not to say that they were like world beaters, but there were there were a lot of games where you went, man, if the offense wouldn't would have scored more than 12, 13, 14 points, we might have actually had a chance. Exactly right. I mean, I know I look at the Carolina and the Titans games from a couple years ago that they blew when they had 17-point leads. I recall the Eagles offense scoring zero points in the second half for those losses. And while, yeah, that was pretty egregious, the defense blew that. You know, this is like, you know, the 21st century here. This isn't 1975. An NFL offense is expected to score bare minimum per game, 24 points. That's the league average. Well, I think... Last I saw, the exact league average was like 21.7 or something like that over a 10-year span. Because uh, obviously a league average for a year is different than a five-year span or a 10-year span. But the 10-year span was like 21.7, which means if you can't average 22 points a game, odds are you're going to be a 500 team or worse. There you go. So let's get back on track yeah. here. So I'm excited about this next one. Yeah, this is a guy who I think the Eagles, if they I'm hire a defensive a, coach, or even if they hire Brian Dable. I'm or, I'm I'm gonna cut you off. And there, there's a reason I'm gonna cut you off because John, this is breaking news. 
I have a guy who jumped the guy that you have on your list. So uh, if I'm not mistaken, you had Pep Hamilton up next. Is that yes. right? I have a guy who uh, in the last few hours on my list has jumped him as somebody I want the Eagles to go out and talk to. And that is David Shaw, the head coach at Stanford. I mean, this guy may well be a, a Stanford lifer or, or as close to it as possible these days because, you know, coaching now, nothing lasts forever. Um, he's 48. He's been coaching 25 years, and he's been at Stanford since 2007 with the last 10 seasons as their head coach. He'd previously served them as offensive coordinator while also coaching the wideouts for three years and quarterbacks for another year. He got his coaching start with the outside linebackers at Western Michigan, and a year later he coached their tight ends. So he's bounced around to a lot of positions here and even uh, coached a little defense. Um, he QC'd for the Eagles for a year and also the Raiders for three years. The Raiders made him their quarterback coach in 2001. Between 2002 and 2004, he split time as the quarterback's coach, then the wide receiver's coach for the Ravens. He spent 2006 as the passing game coordinator and wide receiver's coach at the University of San Diego. I promise you it's a real college uh, before heading to Stanford. And get this. So despite three Pac-12 championships, five North Division top finishers, Despite being named BCS Coach of the Year in 2017 and four-time Pac-12 Coach of the Year, somehow he's come under scrutiny lately. So there's a chance, a chance he might decide to take the get-out-of-jail-free card if the NFL comes calling. Yeah, I don't... You know, here's something very interesting. I just Googled his salary. He's making 4.31 coaching at one of the most prestigious and wealthy universities in America at Stanford. You know, a lot of rich alumni go to Stanford. And before Jim Harbaugh, who Shaw worked for, took over, they were an absolute like doormat in the Pac-12. And, you know... David Shaw kind of, I think David Shaw surpassed Jim Harbaugh at Stanford, in my opinion. So, yeah, I could see him looking to come in the NFL, you know, big contract. Jeffrey Lurie would probably pay him double than what he's making at Stanford. You know, the thing is, I don't understand why there has been no talk. Like, I think we're both in agreement here that he's very underrated. Well, I, I don't know that David Shaw is really even looking to leave. I, In fact, I would go so far as to say, I don't think he is. But things change when somebody calls you on the phone and says, Hey, um, hi, my name is so-and-so. I'm the secretary for Jeffrey Lurie, uh, the owner of the Philadelphia Eagles. Mr. Lurie would like to speak with you. Can I put him on the line? Uh, things change at that point. You know, uh, ideas start getting into your head, uh, and it wouldn't be the first time that an Eagles coach called up a college coach down in California and said, "Hey, I want you to move over to the East Coast and take over." Yeah, um, that would. You're referring to one uh, Dick Vermeil, who coached the uh, UCLA Bruins. Yeah. So, um, 
and even Dick Vermeil admitted when he first got the call, he was like, yeah, right. Huh? No. Uh, I think he had just won the national championship the year before, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, well, he was, well, I mean, that's funny because John Wooden was the head coach of the UCLA Bruins basketball team at the time. So he wasn't even the biggest coach on campus. Yeah. So, uh, and the Eagles were in shambles, of course. So he was like, yeah, no, um, I'm a California kid. I'm not coming up to Philadelphia to freeze myself to death in the winters. Uh, thanks. But no, uh, on second thought, yeah, I'm on my way. <laughs> like it was a very bizarre, um, way that worked out. So I, I don't think David Shaw in his mind is in play. Uh, but you never know. Yeah, they didn't really, I guess they didn't name UCL, UCLA the national championship, but, but Dick Vermeil did win the Rose Bowl against undefeated number one ranked that's, Ohio State. That's what it was. Okay. So, I mean, yeah, I would say if it took place in modern times. Pretty good year. It would be, he probably would have won the national title in all fairness. So, yeah, like that's, you're not going to get deducted points off of that yeah. <laughs> for that, for that um, thing. But yeah, like, you know, I just think with David Shaw, like you mentioned, you're like, it's puzzling why he hasn't gotten a lot of NFL interest. You know, here's the thing with a lot of these college coaches we mentioned. And I think this needs to be said, you know, David Shaw, he's put a lot of guys in the NFL. He's got a very good eye for talent, him and his assistants. If he goes to the Eagles, he's going to have a say on draft day, but he's not picking the players. It's Howie Roseman. And I think for a lot of these college guys is when they come into the NFL, they're going to want a big amount of say on their players because they're leaving that responsibility that they had in college. And I think, there's also a flip side to that, John. And the difference here is that um, when you look at the talent pool in college, there are five programs that can honestly say that when they call a prospect, they are immediately in play for that guy. We're talking Alabama. We're talking um, Clemson. We're talking you know, Ohio State, uh, OU, there are only a few programs that when you, you say, hey, this is so-and-so from this university, that per that guy on the other end of the line is listening, no matter what his thoughts were. It's not like that in the NFL because of the draft and because of the money. <laughs> you know, it, the fact of the matter is, it levels the playing field. So when you're at Stanford, you're you're at a uh, a wealthy school, you're at a very respected school in the college football world. But when you knock on a prospect's door and you introduce yourself, their ears perk up. When Nick Saban knocks on their door and introduces himself, they grab a pen. It's not like that in the NFL. Now the level of the playing field would be level for a college coach. And that's a huge thing. The other thing I'll say about college is if you don't watch college football and you're not really a student of the strategy of the game, when it comes to the X's and O's, I'm going to tell, I'll let you in on a secret. The college coaches are better than the NFL coaches. 
there's a lot that goes into coaching that's not X's and O's. And I'm not saying overall NFL coaches are not as good as college coaches, but when I'm talking X's and O's, the college guys are more practiced in concepts that you would never see in NFL ball, especially the lower level guys. When you start getting into like those D2 programs and D3 programs, um, the offensive concepts are, you start to get into stuff that nobody would ever do in in the NFL because it's seen as outdated or boring or it doesn't sell tickets. You know, when's the last time somebody relied on, you know, maybe with the exception of the Ravens, you know, triple off option. And yet in college football, you see triple option at tons of schools. We saw Navy running it for years. We saw Colorado running it. We saw all kinds of programs. Or the wishbone. The wishbone. Yeah. I mean, you know, the NFL is very pass oriented and it puts a lot of the strategy into a box. College coaches, man, they come in with a lot of ideas that the NFL guys know about, but they haven't seen it. It's not on the forefront of their mind because they dealt with it 10 years ago or they dealt with it 15 years ago and they haven't had to deal with it since. So I really like, I, I don't have that aversion to going to the college guys and I think it works out a lot of the time. But on the to counter your point though, I mean, I've seen just growing up seeing some of these guys who are college coaches coming in the NFL. We can say this about Matt Campbell. We can say about Lincoln Riley is, and I'm going to give the example I'm going to excite as a person that, like, you know, I mentioned recruiting versus drafting Steve Spurrier. Yeah. You know, Steve Spurrier, when he was the coach in Florida, had, you know, he was getting the best recruits in the state. Yeah. You know, and his X's and O's, his offense, that was seen as innovative, mostly ran well because he was getting great talent. In the NFL, you just said yourself that it's a level playing field. And that's the flip side. Yeah, that's the flip side. So the guys who aren't getting the premier talent, maybe like a David Shaw or a Matt Campbell, especially, that leveling of the playing field serves them when they go to the NFL. I think that's what makes Matt Campbell an attractive guy because, like, well, he's winning. He's beaten these teams with better talent because of X's and O's, not because. Yeah, I don't know if you mentioned it when we talked about Matt Campbell, but you mentioned it before the show. I mean, look what he did in the Fiesta Bowl. Yeah, they they whooped up Oregon really good. And um, And they finished number 10 in the nation. They finished 10 in the nation, and I think – you know, and I look, I look back at Chip Kelly. I want to bring up Chip Kelly because I feel like everyone's aversion to a college coach stems from Chip Kelly. Yeah. You know, people forget when Chip Kelly was at Oregon that A, he was getting great recruits, and B, they were he wasn't getting elite <laughs> level football athletes. He was getting guys from their track team, and Oregon is the number one field school in the country. You actually reversed the order. It wasn't that they were getting guys from the track team. It's that they were using the track team to give scholarships to football players to get a scholarship. And that's why I said they were cheating. Because if you remember, when 
Chip Kelly left Oregon for the Eagles. Originally, he said, ah, no, I'm not going to leave Oregon. And then the investigation started. And suddenly, Chip Kelly was signing on the dotted line with the Eagles. And what it was, was they were, uh, you, you have a limit in college football to how many scholarships you can give out, whether they're full scholarships or partial scholarships. They add it all up. And once you get to that total, you can't go above it. So what he did was he found really fast guys that could play wide receiver. And he told the track coach to sign them to track scholarships. And so they could also play football. Um, the, the rules have since changed, uh, or maybe they all had already changed at that point, and they just wanted it uh, to where if you play two sports and you're on scholarship, part of your scholarship has to be factored out of both sports budgets. So that was his deal. I remember, yeah, I just know like Oregon used to have this, I think they still do. Like they're so good at track. I think it was before Chip Kelly was even there because their booster is uh, Phil Knight of Nike. So they had like the best facilities and, you know, all that, all, all the bells and whistles. But um, yeah, I think with David Shaw, he would be a guy that I think would be a good hire. Like if they hired David Shaw, I'd be intrigued and I would be, I would have a positive outlook. So I want to, can we move on to, yeah. like I, well, let's, can we move on to Pep Hamilton? Yes. And, and I'm just going to add one quick anecdote about the Nike deal with Oregon. If you don't think that's a major deal for them, uh, Nike gives Oregon $750,000 a year in cash, but actually where Oregon gets the sweetest deal is uh, $2.5 million in apparel and other gear. So, yeah, uh, they definitely benefit hard from that. But let's go to Pep Hamilton, because for Eagles fans, that's going to be a lot more interesting. Uh, so uh, he's 46 years old. Real name's Alfonza, uh, which I think he should go by. I love the name. Alfonza Pep Hamilton, and he's been coaching 23 years Currently, um, he's wrapping up his only year as the quarterback's coach with the Chargers, assuming it's going to be his only year. Maybe not. Maybe he gets promoted. Uh, but with the turnover change, you would think. Um, while playing quarterback at Howard University, he was a two-time recipient of the school's Scholar-Athlete Award. He then went on to serve as quarterback's coach from 97 to 2001 at that school and also as offensive coordinator for the latter two years. So a pretty quick ascension there. He took a year away from football before returning to serve as an offensive quality control um, coach for the Jets in 2003. Jets made him their quarterback's coach the following year, and a year later, uh, wide receivers coach. Also spent a year coaching QBs for the Niners, and three years doing the same for the Chicago Bears before returning to the collegiate ranks. Hamilton spent three years at Stanford. Well, it's a little connection there uh, as a wide receivers coach before returning to the QB's room when he was tapped to also coordinate the Cardinals offense. In 2013, the Colts hired him as their offensive coordinator. And in 2016, the Browns brought him in as the assistant head coach and quarterbacks coach. Uh, but Hamilton was just there a year with all of their coaching nonsense that goes on there. He then found himself with the Michigan Wolverines again as an assistant head coach and also the passing game coordinator until 2018. 
in 2020, he was hired as the head coach and general manager of the DC defenders of the XFL, uh, who he led to a three and two record before the league folded and he found his way to LA. Hamilton obviously had great success working with Russ, uh, rookie Justin Herbert this year, but uh, with Anthony Lynn out as top coach, Pep is out there for suitors like the Eagles. He's seen more as a potential OC right now, but teams are likely going to be lining up to interview him for that role. The Chargers could make him an offer, offer and uh, there's hype surrounding Miami, the Jets, Eagles, or even Michigan coming back to make another run at his services. Yeah, I'll say this. If the Eagles hired David Shaw, I would say, I guarantee you Pep Hamilton would be the OC Which, if he's a showable. That's a pretty intriguing combo. Because it just makes too much sense because they work together. They're in the same sphere of influence. Um, young quarterbacks to work with. Um, Hamilton has experience in the NFL. It makes too much sense in my opinion. But I like I really love Pep Hamilton here as a guy. You talk about fixing Wentz or de- and developing Hurts. You know he would be a guy that I would really like to bring in. We don't know his credentials as a head coach, but he would be a guy if they brought in and he, you know, fix Carson Wentz or at least get the offense back on the right track into a productive state, he could be on the fast track to becoming a head coach. Yeah, absolutely. If so, it's yeah, all think- right with you, I, uh, I'd i like to kind of just change up the format a little bit because I think we're going on uh, two hours at this point. Yeah, I saw the excellent. Time. So if we, we're going to start speeding through here, we yeah, can do it. So uh, I'm thinking what I'll do uh, since these are the latter names, we're going on to number nine now. Uh, if it's all right with you, I'll kind of just breeze through everybody and then maybe we can circle back on anybody that you think is worth um, just kind of retouching on or any cool facts and things like that. Yeah. All right, so number nine is Joe Brady, uh, another big name out there. He's just 31 years old. Uh, So limited experience with a meteoric rise over eight years in coaching. Currently serving as the OC for the Carolina Panthers, a role he just got this year. He began as a linebackers coach at William & Mary after a career with the Tribe playing wide receiver. So within two years, he was serving as a GA for Penn State, and two years after that as an offensive assistant with the Saints. Again, he moved on only after uh, two years, taking on the role of passing game coordinator and wide receivers coach for LSU, where he helped win a national championship in his only year. He was also awarded the Broyles Award that year, being named best assistant in all of college football. Much like in the case of another guy on this list, Arthur Smith, um, a Joe Brady hiring as a head coach is likely a high-risk, high-reward scenario. The Jets and Falcons have interest with the former already having interviewed him for their top spot. Um, The Eagles rumors are starting up, but that's kind of more just from the media at this point. The only people not interested in interviews involving Brady right now are the folks down in Carolina, though, John. Panthers fans have already penned an open letter to the league titled, quote, keep your hands off. It's clear they're not looking to move on from that relationship, but considering that Brady already interviewed in New York, I'd say the feeling's not quite as mutual. No, and I think him being the Jets head coach would make a lot of sense, and I think 
he would be the East Coast Sean McVay. That's the way I would describe him. Yeah, and at the same time, it might also be disastrous from his career, as we all know my feelings on the Jets. But uh, Yes, not very positive. So you got next. Yeah, so moving on from him is a name that's been floated quite a bit for obvious reasons, and that's uh, Eric Bieniemy. The 51-year-old Bieniemy is a hot name right now, and it's not his first go-around with uh, being in the limelight. In 1990, he led the backfield for the Colorado Buffaloes and helped them to win a national championship. He was also a consensus All-American and Heisman finalist that year. Bieniemy spent nine years in the NFL with the Chargers, Bengals, and even the Eagles for one year when Andy Reid took over. After spending the following year away from football, he returned to his alma mater to coach running backs for two years. He then found his way to the same position at UCLA for the next three years. That led him back to the NFL when he was hired by the Vikings to coach their running backs. He remained with the Vikings four years before again heading back to the Buffaloes, not Buffalo, as their offensive coordinator for the 2011 and 12 seasons. In 2013, he was hired by the Chiefs to coach the backfield, but was promoted to his current OC role in 18. Obviously, Andy Reid and Doug Peterson connections will be made in the league where connections are everything, as we said, for coaching jobs. The Chiefs have had their greatest successes with the enemy coordinating their offense, but at the same time, Andy's still the primary signal caller and having the most dynamic quarterback in the league has to help. The question for some regarding the enemy might be how much credit he should actually get, but a better question might be to ask how much has he learned from one of the most winning coaches in league history and the guy rated number one in that stat for the Eagles. Numerous teams are already currently interested in Uh, That includes the Texans, which have already requested an interview once the Chiefs wrap up their playoff run. Yeah, I like Eric Biennemi a lot. Um, I think he would be definitely be a good coaching candidate. But I think what you said earlier, it's kind of insane to fire a former Kansas City Chiefs offensive coordinator and then hire another Kansas City Chiefs offensive coordinator. If you want to build a different culture because you just the other culture is stale, I don't think it makes sense to hire Eric Bieniemy. Yeah, and it's not it's not even that he they're both Chiefs coordinators. It's that they're both Andy Reid coordinators. That's sorry, the, that's, I, that's you're right. That's where I was kind of going more along the yeah, line. Of. Yeah, that's the real key of it. Uh, my next guy uh, is another interesting one. I briefly mentioned his name earlier, and that's Arthur Smith. Um, He's 38, 14 years experience in coaching, currently the OC under Mike Vrabel in Tennessee, where he's been since 2011. His nine years with the Titans included a two-year stint in quality control, a year as both an online or O-line coach and tight end assistant. So two more years as a tight end assistant and three years as the tight end coach before taking over as the OC last year. So prior to his days in Nashville, he played guard for the North Carolina Tar Heels, then he spent a year as a GA there. He spent 07 and 08 in quality control with Washington, then a year as a defensive intern and administrative assistant at Ole Miss. The Jets actually announced they've interviewed Smith along with the Falcons already. He's been connected to the Lions and Chargers vacancies also. He's from a distant branch of the Belichick coaching tree, I guess you could say. Uh, The Titans have done a great job with their offense, led at the quarterback position by Ryan Tannehill, who probably isn't considered a premier um, 
quarterback in the league, and yet they've experienced a ton of success with that. 32 touchdowns this year. Yeah. So uh, it does help, of course, when you have a 2,000-yard rusher. But Smith definitely deserves a little credit for Derrick Henry's success also. So the Eagles actually requested permission to interview Smith per Dan Graziano of ESPN. Yeah, I think the fans would all want Arthur Smith because it's going to accomplish two things in their minds. I think, one, he's going to people think he's going to fix Carson Wentz. And two, they're going to run the hell out of the ball because that's what the Titans do. Yeah. But the yeah. thing is, the Eagles don't have a running back that's literally an M1 Abrams tank with jet rockets strapped to him. That's, that's what right. Derrick Henry essentially is. Yeah, he's no doubt the uh, most dynamic, most um, game-changing running back in the league right now. And yeah, it's like take Earl Campbell and then make him 30 pounds heavier and somehow faster. That's Derrick Henry. And the other thing is, it's very rare that even when you can shut him down, uh, which anybody can, in the league can be shut down for a game. Um, it's rare that what happens last week happens where, okay, we shut him down and we also shut down the rest of the offense. Usually Smith has some element of that offense clicking. He doesn't have um, the resume that a lot of these guys have, but he does have the success. So he's got that working for him. He He did inherit a good situation, though. I agree. Uh, I think he, I think you're right in uh, placing where he is. I think he might be the coach that everyone's going to overhype, and he's going to be a disappointment. That's my prediction. That's my hot take. Maybe. Or he could be the next Bill Belichick. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> or he could be the next greatest head coach of all time. So let's there keep going, Gino. Yeah, so uh, my next guy on here is another name that we're hearing a lot about, um, not really so much with the Eagles, but uh, a big name here in Robert Sala. So he's 41, been around the coaching world for 19 years, but largely in assistance-type roles. That's key. Prior to his current uh, four-year defensive coordinator stint where he helped the Niners to their Super Bowl loss, he spent three seasons as the Jaguars linebacker coach. Uh, That's really it for his positional coaching and coordinating resume. He spent two years at Michigan State, a year at Central Michigan, and another year split between the Georgia Bulldogs and Seattle Seahawks, but that was all as a defensive assistant and intern. Uh, In 2006, he became a defensive quality control coach for the Texans, who promoted him to assistant linebackers coach, uh, uh, I think it was about a year later. Um, That was a position he held for two years. He then took another defensive QC job, this time with the Seahawks, during which they won a Super Bowl. So uh, needless to say, Sala is a defensive-minded coach. Again, I got to point out, is somebody with his background even going to be interested in the team that barely invests cap space on on that side of the ball? I mentioned that the Eagles currently have 30% of their player salaries vested in defense. Nonetheless, the Eagles requested an interview with him. He's already interviewed with the Jets, Lions, Falcons, and Jaguars. And he's actually reportedly returning for a second New York interview. Yeah, I'm kind of in agreement with you. I like I mentioned him on the pod a couple of weeks ago because I just wanted. I think I was I thought the Eagles should have gotten a defense should look at it heavily at a defensive coach. I think it fits the mindset of the city better. I think it fits the culture here. You know, that if you want to build like a culture built around like being tough and whatnot. You know, I think looking at the optics of Philadelphia, like, you know, having a thicker skin, I think Robert Sala kind of fits all that. But when you look at the resume and then when you just look at 
what you just mentioned too, with their lack of uh, cap space towards defense, like unless they plan on some type of pull, unless they plan on pulling a 180 on how they approach defense, I don't think this is going to happen. No. And the other thing is uh, uh, just to kind of point out what you talked about, the mentality of the city. I think you're right. Like defense does make sense for the city. There are cities where you need a high powered, high passing offense to sell your tickets. LA is a perfect example of a city where if your team is not scoring, you're going to have trouble bringing people out to the games, regardless of how good your defense is. Even if your team is winning, they they crave that high potency offense and i'm not just talking about football i'm talking about baseball and basketball um we don't really have a a great track record because people don't in la don't care about hockey but um true yeah no and there are cities that are like that and that's fine for their fair their you know fan base but you know eagles fans are going to pack that stadium eight eight times a year no matter what that's just, it is what it is, you know, and that's not to say like, I'm an Eagles fan, but I don't, I don't go around saying we're the best in the league or we're the best in the world. Um, Cause I don't, I don't know. I'm biased, but I, what I do know is if the Eagles have a four win season again next year, they're still going to be packing people into that state. Oh yes. My, my stupid self is going to be going to all those games next year or this year, excuse me, COVID permitting. Yeah, I agree. I mean, if you want some historical examples to back up what you just said, I don't think the San Diego Chargers of the 70s will let Don Coriel call 40 passing plays a game. And I don't think the Dolphins minded Dan Marino throwing 400 touchdowns when they could barely fill their stadium, whether they're good or not. Yeah. So there is history to back up what you're saying. I agree that you know I, I mean i think it would be if you want to bring accountability back to the organization you know if you want to bring in a defensive coach i think that's what he would do yeah now, not saying an offensive coach can't do it but i just feel like an offensive coach might just want to like you know innovate the league you know and i don't think accountability is high up in the priorities as if you're trying to build like an innovative scheme. You know what I mean? The other thing I've always gotten a sense of is defensive coach, defensive minded coaches tend to sit back and let people do what they're supposed to do. Like it just seems to me that every single offensive minded head coach in the league wants to call his own plays, but not every defensive minded head coach in the league is calling every defense. They still have a coordinator and where, you know, you're the, you're the head coach. You're not, you're not there to be necessarily the defensive coordinator. You're supposed to be managing all levels of your coaching staff and letting your coaches manage what's going on on the field. And I I like that in a defensive coach, Um, you know, a guy that maybe Eagles fans don't appreciate a lot that I love is Wade Phillips. I think Wade Phillips is, a phenomenal coach. I think he was phenomenal before he went to the Cowboys. I think he was good with the Cowboys, despite the fact that the Cowboys have one of the most um, lopsided topsy turvy structures to their um, management in the entire league. And I think he's been great since he left. And I think part of that is because Wade Phillips has the ability to sit back and say, 
I I just have to manage what I have to manage because he's a defensive minded coach. So now, of course, the next guy on my list who I think caught your eye uh, is not a defensive minded guy at all by any means. And that's uh, Byron Leftwich. So uh, Leftwich, obviously, he had the 10 year career as a player. Afterward, he decided to stay in the quarterback's room and accepted a job as quarterback's coach for the Cardinals. In his second year, he was also made the interim offensive coordinator, but Bruce Arians' entire staff was ousted after that season. When Arians took the Tampa Bay job the next season, he tapped Leftwich to lead his, quote, no-risk-it, no-biscuit offense, uh, which I love. If you haven't read Arians' book, by the way, uh, I can't remember the name. It might I don't think it's the quarterback whisper. It might be quarterback. Wh- anyway, I love that book. It was one of the best page turners I've read in a long time regarding football. Anyway, uh, there, the two of them obviously have had a lot of success and they're now preparing to play this weekend in the divisional round, albeit having Tom Brady and Antonio Brown probably helps them quite a bit. And Gronk. Yeah. Godwin. <laughs> yeah, they got, I mean, they've got talent there with, you know, good for them. I love I'm a Bruce Arians fan, so I'm I'm happy for him. Um, there's something to be said on the flip side of that for the job that Leftwich has done because he's managed to coax Brady out of his familiar 10-yard dink-and-dunk Patriot passing game into the long ball offense that Arians used, uh, likes to use to set up the run game. So I think whether it's this year or another, Byron Leftwich will be in demand. Just kidding, Just kidding, John. It'll be this year. Leftwich was actually asked about his interest in the open head coach's job at Marshall. And let's just say he did not say he's not interested. And uh, actually the, the thundering herd consider him their quote dream candidate. So fun fact, since we're mentioning the thundering herd of Marshall, another candidate for their head coaching job is former Eagles tight end slash long snapper, Mike Bartram. Oh, how about that? I didn't realize that. Yeah, he's the Eagles assistant tight ends coach. So that's, you know, the with Peterson gone, I think he would have no restraints of taking that job if offered. For what it's worth, something I've always wanted to say to people and have never really had the opportunity and now have a good reason to say it. Um, if you look at Mike Bartram, who was here as a long snapper for like 14 years, and then John Durenboss, who was here like 10 years, that's kind of like they're they're kind of like the epitome of long snappers. They just they achieved excellence at what they did. Bartram was a guy who used to be able to like they said he could stand on the street and snap a ball into a mailbox like four houses down the street. You know, like that's just excellent. So we went through 24 years of just excellence at that position that doesn't get a lot of credit to Rick Lovato, who John, as you know, I can't stand rick lovato i think he shares a lot of blame for the eagles kicking problems and when you actually watch his snaps over and over again they're just not good so now that i've gotten that out of the way should we should we should i get off my soapbox for a minute and move on to my so it's i i was gonna make i was gonna make the comparison you know steelers get credit for only having three head coaches since like 1969 or whatever it is you know, the Eagles have had three long snappers since like 2000, which is unheard of. Yeah. And, you know, there's there's two positions that the Eagles just excel at at acquiring. It's uh, tight ends and long snappers. That's just, yeah, that's it. 
Bravo. So you mentioned Eric Bieniemy earlier, but it looks like on your list you have Mike Kafka, who's a former, another former Eagle on this list. Yeah, and another Andy Reid disciple. So he's another guy with a really short resume. No real coordinating experience to speak of. He's just 33, been coaching five years. Um, obviously, currently with the Chiefs as their uh, quarterbacks coach since 18. He's uh, also been named their passing game coordinator this season, which I don't think that really means much when you have Andy Reid and Eric Bieniemy in front of you. Well, so- not to act like his PR guy. But I read a big article on the Chiefs and Patrick Mahomes and Andy Reid, and his unofficial title with the Chiefs is the Patrick Mahomes coordinator. <laughs> He's been tutoring him ever since the Chiefs drafted him in 2017, and they're basically like joined at the hip. Okay. Right. Now, Mahomes is the arguably the best quarterback in the league. You know, it's not like he was this nobody that they've developed. But I think what I read is, and what Andy Reid's kind of cultivated is, the relationship between Kafka and Mahomes is not unlike the relationship between Andy Reid and Brett Favre. Okay. Well, I mean, we can certainly like sit here and critique what the role is for him in the unit, but whatever the role is, the title that he holds definitely worked out for the most part in preparing Doug Peterson for a Super Bowl run. So something to be mentioned there. I agree. But I think, you know, before people get excited listening to this, we'll go, Oh my God, like let's do it. It's like, you know, you mentioned earlier, Andy Reid had a much bigger coaching resume. than Mike Kafka did. I I mean, I wouldn't go so far as to say much bigger. Um, I would say Kafka's definitely deserving of becoming an offensive coordinator and calling plays. I think he's earned that, but to be a head coach and just completely skip that. Yeah. I'm skeptical of that. Yeah. So just to kind of like round out his background, I want to point out that prior to 2018, he spent a year as the offensive quality control coach with the Chiefs, I should say, an offensive quality control coach. Um, And the year before, had served as a GA at his alma mater, Northwestern. Um, Obviously, also has a history in the league playing quarterback for seven teams in six years, including his longest stint, which John was with. The Philadelphia Eagles. That's right. Two seasons with the Eagles. That was his longest stint with any one team. So I guess we're going we're going to round out the remainder of your list. I have Greg Roman here, the offensive oh. coordinator with the Ravens. What well, do you have to I, say to him? We're, we're on to number 15, actually, now. And I earlier I had said that Staley was 14. That was originally where I had him when I sent you the list. But correction, Staley is 15. We've already covered him. We can jump him. Um, and then with – with the remaining five, it's more of like an honorable mention. So for those who don't know who they are, um, the honorable mention goes to Greg Roman, who's working with the Ravens right now. You have Daryl Bevel, who, of course, had um, had coached the the Lions. And then the name one of the names I mentioned earlier uh, is Chris Richard who's with the Cowboys right now. He's a high-energy guy. He seems like he's being tapped as a as a potential future head coach, so I like to keep an eye on him. Um, I don't know that 
I, I highly doubt he wants to go anywhere um, right now, and especially to Philadelphia, because I think he's got a good situation down um, with the boys in Dallas. And then um, I also have uh, Steve Spagnola, another Eagles retread, another Chiefs uh, bring in. And then my, my last honorable mention is uh, – Almost, almost not worth mentioning, but Brandon Staley, who uh, is the defensive coordinator for the Rams. No relation to Deuce. No. No, I, I don't think so. I mean, the Rams had the number one defense in the NFL this year, so Brandon Staley, I mean, I think it's worth, you're right, worth mentioning his name. Yeah, it's an honorable mention. I mean, other names sound more realistic and more intriguing like Steve Spagnolo. Obviously, if you could steal Chris Richard from a divisional opponent and really the only opponent that's consistently stood in your way in the division over the last 10 years, uh, that doesn't hurt anything. I think he's more going to end up being a, a coordinator. Um, but yeah, I mean, be, I think he would be a good coordinator. Yeah, he's he's a, a total high energy guy. I really like that. Um, I think he relates well to the players. Like, there's something to be said for when a guy walks in and like, look, uh, you know, I I can say this as a guy who's like 31 and out of shape and completely overweight. You know, the way the players look at Brian Dable is different than the way they look at Chris Richard when they walk into a room. Chris Richard has is extremely physically fit not that that makes you qualified to be a coach but it it does mentally open some doors with certain people when they see this guy who you know he's working out in the team gym with them um he's not he's not mike mccarthy getting a massage while the team meeting is going on speaking of working out i want i really you're listening to julian edelman talking about the times he ran into Bill Belichick during his rookie season. No. Apparently Belichick likes to go in at four in the morning and Edelman, one of the veterans told Edelman that he should, if he wants to make, you know, move up in the rankings of the team, he should start working out four in the morning. And they all knew that Belichick was there for the morning just to rib him. So he showed up at the gym and he sees Belichick on the treadmill, like watching tape while he's like, you know, running or, using elliptical and Belichick sees Edelman there and Belichick says to him, what the F are you doing here? This like, this is my time. Get out of here. <laughs> yeah. I mean that Belichick is no, he's been doing that since he was with the giants. That's what he's known for. Like he gets his film in, he he's sitting there eating some kind of healthy breakfast while he's on the treadmill. I mean, I'm pretty sure the guy doesn't even know what his wife looks like. Yeah. So I think we've done an extensive coverage of all the candidates that we know of right now, or any future candidates, possible coordinators for the Eagles. I think we've been very thorough. I mean, 20 names in two hours and 15 minutes. That's, I'd say that was pretty good. So I'm going to have this show everyone on our new um, RSS feed. It's the Pilot Podcast. Uh, the web page for it is thepilotpod.com. 
And we'll be doing another show later this week uh, when more news of the Eagles coaching search trickles out. Obviously, we'll cover that and we'll talk about, you know, some other football related things, probably some non football related things as well. And, you know, I'd like to thank Gino for joining us and we look forward to having him on more future broadcasts. And as always, thanks for tuning in and have a good day. Morning, night, whenever you're listening to this, it's almost one o'clock as I'm recording this right now. I'm dazed and confused, but uh, managed to do it. So, regardless, so anyway, have a good night.